Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast, powered by the Henderson Brewing Company, a locally owned, award-winning neighborhood brewery that celebrates Toronto's stories and culture. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Christopher Ward. Christopher is a songwriter, a musician, an author, a TV personality, and a podcaster. But our focus today is on the two things he is perhaps most well-known for. Number one, as the original host slash VJ on the nation's music station, Much Music. Tonight, live from coast to coast, the launch of Canada's first 24-hour music channel, the nation's music station, Much Music. And number two, as the Juno Award-winning songwriter of Alana Miles' Billboard Hot 100 hit, Black Velvet. It's great to be able to catch up today with Christopher Ward. Good morning and welcome, Christopher, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? All's well here, Andrew. Thank you. Nice to, nice to be on your show. Thanks for, for inviting me. Uh, we are in Santa Monica, California. I can't think of a person I'm, I'm more jealous of than you. Uh, <laughs> is, is this where you live now? The internet says you live in both Toronto and California. Maybe you can clarify the record for us. Mostly Santa Monica. And have you been down there a while? You know, there have been two, two chunks of time. The first one was in 1990, when all sorts of career opportunities unfolded and California called. And then the second time was uh, about 10 years ago when I came back. My daughter was going to UCLA and, and everything changed. And when was the last time you shoveled snow? And do you miss that task? <laughs> you know... I don't think it was that long ago. I have come up in the winter occasionally. I, I actually miss the snow and the, and the cold in the winter. You, you can borrow some of mine anytime you want to come up. Thank you very much. I think we're on a big shoveling spree here, and I'm sure you heard uh, <laughs> Buffalo, which even has more experience with snow, is really struggling. So uh, I am definitely jealous. How was your holiday break? Any travel plans, or do you just like to take it easy and, and uh, nestle in at home? I did go to Vancouver and got a good blast of snow up there. Um, and, and managed to leave in the midst of a blizzard. And most flights were canceled, but mercifully mine wasn't. So, it's good you got a chance to uh, to come north. Remember your roots, as they say. Always, always. <laughs> well, let's jump right in. Go all the way back. Get the Christopher Ward story. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. I was born in Toronto. How do I describe my upbringing, man? It's, I don't even know. Uh, <laughs> Siblings, what your parents I was well do? Taken care of. I'm the oldest of five children, so I was the boss at home, of course. And I got my first guitar when I was 13. So, does anything else matter? You know. <laughs> hey, what did your parents do? Uh, my mom was a, a homemaker or house housekeeper, whatever. Not housekeeper, but um, she looked after five kids. That was, yeah. that was a full time job for her. And my dad was in the um, pharmaceutical business. And what neighborhood would you have grown up in, Christopher? Well, we moved a lot. I mean, I went to, I think it was nine different schools. So I was always the stupid new kid, you know. You know that, I don't know if you ever had that experience where you walk in the room and everybody knows everybody and they're all happy to be back together again after the summer. And they look at you like, who are you? <laughs> yeah. You really 
had to test your uh, your skills of making new friends frequently. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say it was a hallmark of my childhood and, and definitely influenced who I became. And where did you finish high school at? Uh, Jarvis Collegiate in downtown Toronto, yeah. Yeah, and, and you went from there, you did go to university in uh, Peterborough, if I understand. Yeah, I went to Trent. Loved, loved, loved that place. Would you say that was kind of where you were uh, involved or first got involved with radio at the campus station? Yeah, my friend Stephen Stone and I and a couple of other guys um, actually started the Trent radio station. And then I got hired to do the all-night show on CKPT in Peterborough, which was, was, it was good. I mean, I was trying to go to school by day and be a DJ at night. So you can imagine which one got less attention, right? <laughs> yeah. And was this your career aspiration to go into radio, to be on the air, so to speak? No, I, I already knew I wanted to be a songwriter. But, you know, it's funny, there weren't any people who did creative work for a living in my family. So I had no model for that. I was sort of hesitant to declare that that was my intention was to be a songwriter. But really, in my heart of hearts, that's what I wanted to do. And as you know, you were, I guess, a musician and a songwriter first. Uh, when did you get signed to Warner Brothers and how did that all come about? Um, well, I was, you know, scuffling away like a bunch of other people of my era playing these little folk clubs in Toronto like Bruegel's Tavern and the Pizza Patio. <laughs> Mark Jordan played all the same places. We always laugh about this stuff. And just trying to get noticed and try to write better songs and try to at least have, you know, more people in the crowd than there were on stage. Just kept making demo tapes. Every time I made any money at all, I'd immediately go and record my latest songs and I would pester A&R people. And they were, I got to say, very gracious about listening to me because I, I don't think I had my act together at all in those days. Well, let me tell you, I used to bring my dog to my meetings with the A&R <laughs> guys. What does that tell you? Yeah. That's a, a quirky Amateur. approach. <laughs> now, Christopher, were you self-taught or did you take music lessons? Well, if I took music lessons, I don't remember them. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think my parents probably acquiesced to my love of music and insisted that I take guitar lessons. But for me, it was never about being a player. It was always about the ideas. It was about the songs and, and trying to be a composer. Now, you recorded a solo album, 1978, called Spark of Desire. And mm -hmm. this is timely today, 2023, as this debut album has resurfaced, available for the first time on streaming services. What is the story of the rebirth of Spark of Desire? <laughs> resurfaced, it kind of sounds like a horror movie. <laughs> it's, back, <laughs> it's back, you know, <laughs> whether you like it or not. Yeah, I, actually, it was at Stephen's initiative. He He's always wanted to hear a remastered version, but we never had any tapes to work from. And Warner had long since lost the masters. And then sure enough, I was digging around looking for some stuff from my blog post, just some wacky old promotional bits from when I was signed to Warner. And I came across a two track master, a stereo master. So with Dolby, so we pulled that out and took it down to Zhao's studio and uh, he remastered the thing. And it's, it sounded great, and the reason it sounded great is because of Jack Richardson. It had nothing to do with me. Jack Richardson was, for those who don't know him, a master producer um, with an international reputation. He had a wonderful studio called Nimbus 9 Studios. The Juno Award for Producer of the Year is named after Jack, appropriately enough. 
and I learned anything I learned, I learned from Jack Richardson. And, and he just hired the best players. It was a simple formula, really. He got the best players available, and then he would somehow manage to get the best performances out of those players. That was his genius. And with the, your songs and your debut album coming into streaming and being available to the wider world, what's the response been since uh, it's been available again? It's been really nice. You know, you, <laughs> the Internet's a funny place, and you just don't know where, what you're going to get back from it. It's always gratifying when people say, hey, you know, you did this 165 years ago, and I loved it then, and it's going to be great to have it now. Because people have been wanting this, and they've asked for it. I mean, not, not like millions of people, but a few, shall we say. Yeah. So um, it's, it's been very gratifying. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't really listen to my old work at all, ever. And, I, and not because I don't like it, just because I'm on to something else, like, you know, like most creative people. So, yeah, when I, when I heard this stuff, it was like, who's that guy? Mm. <laughs> but at the same time, it sounded really good. There were things about the songs that surprised me that were like stuff I would be really proud of, you know? I mean, my friend Stephen Stone wrote most of the melodies, at least of the songs that we wrote together, obviously. And he just had a gift for writing these beautiful, sweeping, sort of Brian Wilson-esque melodies. And I struggled away writing the lyrics to those songs. I mean, my style of writing changed pretty dramatically, as you probably could tell. I mean, take it from Spark of Desire to Alanis' first album, where I wrote most of the songs. It's a very different style. But, you know, I think it all works in its own way. Now, you have this component of your life, songwriting and being a musician, and then you have your on-air component. Before Much, Much Music launched, in the early 80s, you hosted a weekend all-night video program called City Limits on City TV. This is Friday and Saturday nights from midnight to 6 a.m. You effectively broke ground as Canada's first VJ. This show had an avant-garde approach and, in fact, was broadcast from the Queen Street West studios, just the control room. I guess the budget wasn't that big at the time. Christopher, how'd you get this job, and what was the uh, origin story of the uh, City Limits program? Well, I knew John Martin, who was the uh, program director, he, well, he was responsible for the new music, and um, there was a, a, a move afoot to get the license for, um, you know, effectively Canada's MTV. And John came to me. He actually came to my last show at Second City because I was in the touring company. And he came to me after the show and he said, Krista, see me in my office on Monday. Like that, that from John was an effusive offer of employment. He said... He was doing this show, and he wanted to do an all-night show. It was kind of a precursor to much. And I thought, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to be on television. It, it, I, I didn't really care about the medium particularly, and I was so... And I was, I was in doing the Second City Touring Company stuff really just to make a living. And um, I was fully prepared to commit myself again to uh, just to songwriting and developing Alana's career. And he's like, well, you need the money, don't you? I'm like, mm, yeah. Mm. He says, and you can do anything you want. Anything I want. Well, that was a pretty good combination. So I, I went home and thought about it, but not for too long because <laughs> Moses was on the warpath. So so that's how that came about. And, and I guess it was it was obviously a, a, an early version of, of Much in that we played music videos and 
I would host in between the segments. Um, it was live, which was great, which was very different from MTV, which was the standard in those days. Because everything they did was, was pre-written. They, they recorded it in a little shot box in New Jersey or something, and, and it just had a pretty stale kind of feel to it. Whereas ours was just completely seat-of-the-pants television. And, and for me, coming out of just having done Second City, it, it, was, it was a perfect fit. Christopher, just to set the table, as you note, MTV, the American Television Network, was not broadcast in Canada due to regulatory laws protecting Canadian content. They didn't appear in Canada until 2006. Was Much Music Canada's answer to America's MTV, or was it meant to be something totally different? Um, both. It was, for people who wanted music, a music channel, it was, it was the answer, because they couldn't uh, receive MTV. Um, but it also was something radically different in terms of its style. A lot of that goes to Moses as well as John, because Moses developed that whole free-floating style in the newsroom, where the anchors would go from one desk to another and interact and so on. And there was a looseness about it that was very different from what went before. And some of that was, was translated into the, uh, into the Much Studios. When the uh, CRTC did grant a broadcast license for an all-music channel to begin in 1984, Chum City won the lucrative rights. As part of their winning application, your show, City Limits, had been included as evidence of kind of their experience in broadcasting, <laughs> music, video entertainment. Christopher, would you say City Limits was kind of the incubator for the future Much Music? Well, I guess that was the intention. I mean, they were... <laughs> They, they, they kind of let me know that, but it, it wasn't like, oh, if you do this, you'll get a job on this network or anything. It was, I mean, they still had to go past the, all the gateposts to get the, uh, the license through anyway. And they had some pretty stiff competition. I mean, Rogers was in there, and um, I'm not sure who else, but it, it was almost like they were the, the little scruffy upstart who emerged at the last minute. I mean, it was, it was loose. It was... It was unrehearsed, and the and the artists really responded to that. They they liked that there wasn't this whole scripted thing where you know you'd ask a question, they'd give an answer, you okay, and then move on to your next question. It was a really it was a free floating kind of conversation, and the fans were involved in a way that net, that eventually I guess it happened in MTV with um, some of their shows, but you know once. The kids caught on, which took them about five minutes, that they could be down on Queen Street with their faces pressed against the glass and they could be looking at Duran Duran or Bon Jovi or whoever, you know. It brought about a different level of engagement and excitement and probably made the police's job a lot harder. But, <laughs> there, um, there, there were some hectic times at that corner. But it was brilliant. It was so much fun to be part of it, you know. Like the, the Bon Jovi story is kind of a a good example of, of how a band really got it and really used it. I, I, got, I got a call from Karen Gordon, who was working for Polygram at the time when we were doing the all-night show. She said, oh, I've got this band in town, and they've had, we've got one video, and it's, the record's not selling. She was totally candid. She, record's not selling. Nobody cares. Nobody knows them. Would you have them on your show? <laughs> I'm like, well, Karen, of course, for you. No problem. <laughs> so they came down, and they were just a bunch of you know, crazy rock and roll guys with like too much hairspray, but they were so much fun. And they really kind of got the idea of coming in and storming the studio and all of that stuff. And conveniently, we provided them with a plot line because we had lost our only copy 
of their only video. <laughs> like, oh, geez. So they were like, don't worry, we'll find the video. So we, they, you know, they started wandering through the building. And at this point, we were already packing up to move to Queen Street West for the launch of Much Music. So they were like, you know, drinking beer out of girls' shoes and then who from their cupboards. And it was just crazy stuff. And then cut to four years later, they released Slippery When Wet, sold like 11 million copies or whatever. And then they were back on tour at Maple Leaf Gardens. And um, they said, we're only doing one show. And so they came down and did my show. And we set up a barbecue up on the ledge there above the parking lot. And uh, we made them barbecue, which, I mean, again, they just, they, they loved that whole thing. So, and then they would go over to the edge of the, um, the, the balcony and sort of, you know, yell down to the kids. And there'd be this roar of excitement coming from down below. And I don't know, was it artful television or it was, you know, it was memorable and it was a lot of fun. And I think the fans felt that they got something different and, and personal out of the experience. So interactive. Yeah, I guess that's the word, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and of course, everything, we now look back and we see all these things and how innovative and new they were at the time. It must have been a combination, I guess, of exciting and, and scary for you. You were the original VJ for Much Music, launched in 1984, specifically 6 p.m., August 31st, 1984 from, as you know, the iconic Toronto studio at 299 Queen Street West. It was you, Christopher Ward, and JD, now John Roberts, burst through a screen of fireworks and launched Much Music, the nation's music station. Get on with it here, all right. All right, heck of a way to start a rock and roll show. Yeah, that's a little bit of a snappy opening, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I'm JD Roberts. I'm Christopher Ward. And what we have for you to kick the whole thing off is the first time that music and picture were ever synced. This is from 1922, and UB Blake, this is Snappy Song on, on Much Music. What do you remember about that day and, and leading up to that launch? Well, now that I've heard that description, I remember a lot more. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. I remember standing behind the green screen with JD, and I'm claustrophobic. So I was really unhappy back there because <laughs> we had to wait for a while, of course. And then finally the big moment came, and I think JD, ever the Boy Scout, had a little pen knife in his pocket. So he, like, drew a line down the center of the, uh, the screen and then across, and then we were able to <laughs> sort of bust, because otherwise we'd probably still be standing there, right? <laughs> yeah. It was chaos as usual, but you know what? So much of the John Martin stuff was chaos by design, and it drove people crazy. There were some people that were really not cut out for that level of looseness, that they wanted at least some framework to do a television program. But they would just turn the partiers loose, and then you had to work around them. There were times when it was frustrating, and then there were times where you just go, oh, God, what the hell? I'm here now. I might as well take in for a penny, in for a pound, and you just letting them do whatever they wanted. And it usually made for pretty entertaining TV. Yeah. Well, the very first episode of the show began with Welcome to Much Music. Coming up, we have brand new videos by Duran Duran, Howard Jones, and The Spoons from Burlington. So there's your local content. <laughs> Christopher, potential trick question. What were the first videos shown on Much Music after you launched? There was this retro video. Gosh, I'm trying to remember his name. Like Nobel Sissel and UB Blake. UB Blake, yeah, from the 1930s, I think. 
And I, that was a John Martin thing. He really wanted to license that thing. And I, I don't know what he had to do to get it, but it was like, no, this is the first actual music video because everybody was saying, oh, you should use um, Video Killed the Radio Star because it was so, you know, sort of emblematic. And I think probably that was the first one on MTV in the U.S. Yes. But we also played a Rush video. Cannot catch you sleeping, Christopher. You're right on both. <laughs> Technically, the first was an early music-to-film synchronization short from 1923. As you note, Nobel Sissel and UB Blake in snappy songs. And you're right on the second one. The first new video was a premiere at the time of Rush's The Enemy Within. Right. Well, thanks for the reminder. <laughs> well, J.D. Roberts, now John Roberts, he's now the co-anchor of the Fox News show America Reports. I have to ask, do you, do you keep in touch? Have you ever met with him subsequently? Do you have reunions where you talk about the grand old days? Or is it just a, another uh, a chapter? A couple of times, yes. Um, and it's always been incredibly cordial. I think he... Uh, he, I think he has a real place in his heart for that that era in his career. I mean, he went on to some pretty great things, you know, working for CBS News and then for CNN and so on. He loved it, as did we all, you know. I mean, it was one of those things that happens in your life where it's going so quickly that you can't really organize it in your mind because you're so on to the next so quickly than the following day or later the same day. And I think hindsight is the only thing that provides a little bit of clarity about what actually happened. But that's typical. J.D., I'm trying to think, we met, he, he received uh, an award, I think it was a, like a Broadcast Hall of Fame award, maybe. Andrew, you're a researcher. I know you're going to look this up for me, buddy. <laughs> I will <laughs> get the answer. Save me on this one. And then when I was going to write the book, uh, Is This Live?, uh, which was the history of the early years of Much?, he was the first person I contacted, mm -hmm. and I, I didn't have a phone number for him, but I, I uh, emailed him. He got back to me in five minutes, mm. and then we yacked and yacked and yacked, and then you know we did the, the questions, which became part of his interview in the book. He's great. He was, he was an amazing guy to work with because he was so knowledgeable. He was a sponge for information, and the, the joke was always that he could have run the network by himself. Because he knew how to operate the cameras, and he knew how to use an editing suite, and he knew how to be a great broadcaster and all of this stuff. So he was, uh, he was a genuine talent. Hey Toronto, the GTA, and parts beyond. Sign up for a subscription box from the Henderson Brewing Company, where every month you will get the special seasonal release, plus three other unique taproom-only beers mailed anywhere in Canada. Available in four, six, or 12-month subscriptions, these packs are great for any beer lover, including, yes, yourself. Order now at hendersonbrewing.com or visit their tap room and retail store at 128A Sterling Road along the West Toronto Rail Path. Henderson Brewing and the Toronto Legends Podcast, a great local partnership. Well, you note when you look back at everything, it's all kind of choppy and you got to collect all your thoughts. And you did that because, as you just noted, 2016 your book came out is this live inside the wild early years of much music the nation's music station this was kind of an oral history of the entire first decade of much music what was the inspiration for the title is this live well there's a couple of things the lesser of the two was there was a visit from some of the people at mtv in new york including downtown julie brown and she walked in the studio and looked around <laughs> with an expression of consternation, probably thinking, how could she survive here herself? 
And she said, is this live? And they were like, yep, it's live. But the real one was LaToya Jackson. So I was interviewing LaToya Jackson. It was in the old building at 99 Queen East. And as you know, we would, I mean, there was no such thing as a set. So we would just interview people in different locations so that they looked different from, from each one. There was an old fire bell. It was about the size of a hubcap that was mounted on the wall. And I was interviewing her underneath the, uh, the fire bell, which unfortunately went off, of course, in the middle of the interview. You probably knew that. Yeah. And it was just unbelievably loud because it was just one of those, it was just, and, and we were used to it. And she, she had this just terrified expression on her face. And she went, is there a fire? In that Jackson voice. And I said, no. She was like, pause. And at this point, like, we're not even trying to continue with the interview because you couldn't hear us. She says, is this live? I said, mm-hmm. And then um, I remember Dennis Saunders, who was the floor producer, floor director that day, going, do you want to go to video? Do you want to go to video? I'm like, no, let's just hold. So I, I thought it was sort of funnier for me and Latoya just to sit there with this bell going crazy over top of our heads and, uh, and otherwise doing nothing. So that's what we did. And then I think Daniel Richler came along with his signature leather jacket and hung the leather jacket on top of the fire bell. So we finished the interview. <laughs> you, you, gotta, you do what you got to do, right? You do what you got to do when it's live. Now, Christopher, your book's forward was written by Scarborough's own Mike Myers. What's your history with Mike and, and how did you get him involved with writing the forward and kind of what was your relationship? I, I, I want to take one little tangent, if I may. Please. But it's very brief. Um, the book just got optioned for uh, a scripted comedy series. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. I, I can't tell you anymore because it hasn't all happened, but I'm kind of stoked. I mean, yeah. just the idea of like something completely different and unexpected coming out of it. I mean, I knew that some of the book was funny just because of the wackiness of the events at hand, but I never saw it as being the raw material for a comedy but apparently somebody else did, which is good. Mike and I were in the Second City workshop program at the same time, and uh, we became friends. And then, this is, this is ridiculous, but they wanted to audition for a new cast member for the uh, touring company, and they auditioned, I think there might have been four or five of us. Mike was one of them, and I was one. And he and I actually practiced some of what we thought they would want us to do for the audition together beforehand, even though we were, in essence, competitors. But here's the best part. <laughs> they hired me instead of Mike Myers. Well, there you go. There's a claim to fame. <laughs> but just, you know, I, I, I remember I got in the, the, the bus, the, the Second City Touring Company bus, and I, I was grateful and I wanted the job. But I said, how on God's green earth, could you have hired me instead of this kid who is so obviously brilliant? I, th I it, can't remember what their answer was. but <laughs> Well, yeah. Anyway, um, he got hired like a month later. And so we were in the touring company together. And, and again, our friendship was cemented with some long journeys in that van to the Deerhurst Inn and some to Blue Mountain Resort. And I remember we used to sit in the back and eat sandwiches and listen, listen to The Clash. Because I, I, uh, I had headphones that had two, two prongs on them. So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he apparently was starting the, the genesis of the, the Wayne Campbell uh, 
shtick, if you want to call it, his Wayne's World character. Was this something he was testing on you or testing on audiences at that time? Yeah, definitely. He uh, well, he said he used to do it at parties to get girls. So that was where Wayne came from. City Limits was the first time Wayne appeared on television. That's kind of the the claim to fame. Uh, and it was just such a great, it was such a fully realized character because he wasn't just two-dimensional and funny, which he was, but it was like Wayne had a life and he had desires and disappointments. And, you know, <laughs> I, I love that character to this day. Well, and subsequently, of course, a series of movies. And if, if I understand correctly, you made some cameos in the Wayne's World series. Did I? No, I don't think so. Uh, I did make cameos in the Austin Powers trilogy. Ah. Yeah, I was in uh, the first one, The International Man of Mystery, and then I was in uh, the third one. Well, we had a band. We, the band was called Ming-T, and Austin, of course, was the lead vocalist. And do you know Matthew Sweet? Yes. Yeah, Matthew Sweet was in the band, and uh, Susanna Hoffs was in the band. It was pretty, it was pretty fun. You... Um went on to have many highlights, both at Much Music and beyond, but I want to talk about some of the big moments of your Much Music tenure. I think covering Live Aid in 1985 at Wembley Stadium in London would probably be high up your list of experiences. Andrew, that was an amazing time for so many reasons. We were in London, coincidentally, or we were going to London to take some contest winners to a Prince's Trust Fund show featuring Dire Straits which we did. And it was around that time that they announced that Live Aid was definitely happening and that we could get in and cover it. So we extended our stay. I remember interviewing Bob Geldof on the, um, the balcony overlooking the street of Polygram Records in London. And this was a man possessed with purpose. And it just infected everyone around him. There's an entire room full of people, I guess mostly label employees, but also you know, press people and so on, who were all sort of working to support his initiative. And I'm sure there were other people involved, but it was still, it was still the brainchild of one man. And just witnessing the power of music itself and the passion that he brought to that, uh, that series of events was breathtaking even to think about it now. I don't know. I mean, they'd never had a concert, had they, that, that had spanned the globe like that? I, I don't, maybe there was, not, but not that I know of. So there was the technological feat, which was incredible. And um, I think in the past, a lot of the sort of charity concerts had been troubled as far as being able to live up to their goals of, you know, raising a lot of money for a good cause. And I think the Bangladesh one, the George Harrison uh, launched would have been a good example of that. Great intentions, but did it follow through? But then, then came you know, then came Live Aid and um, the Human Rights Now concerts and so on, and it seemed like they started to get it right. It was, uh, I mean, it was an historical moment, obviously, to be present for, and just seeing things like um, Elvis Costello playing, you know, All You Need Is Love solo, and then when they when they raised Geldof up on their shoulders, and it was, you know, Pete Townsend and Paul McCartney. And, and McCartney, of course, the equipment screwed up while he was performing Let It Be, and we couldn't hear the first half of the song. And it was like, oh, yeah? No! <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah, I mean, I could keep going on the memories of Live Aid. It was, it was an amazing experience. Well, the whole 80s music for me, that's my youth, my wheelhouse. So, of course, Christopher, I'm interested in any good or bad interactions you had. I want to start well, with the... Of both. <laughs> I want to start with the international division first. Duran Duran. <laughs> um, well, I did an interview Duran Duran. That was Erica. Um, and, and you know what? She was the perfect choice to do that job because she played along with their silliness. Mm-hmm. But she also got exactly what she needed to from them in terms of interview content. You know, like, so, like she would ask things like, so do you guys really look at magazines and pick out girls you want to date and then call, have, have your manager call the, the you know, the modeling agency? <laughs> they're like, well, yeah, I did that once. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she was great. How did you decide who would interview who? Because uh, you probably had your list of favorites and the other VJs had their list of favorites. How'd that work? There was some that I think I got because I was a musician, because, you know, like, like a Peter Gabriel or something. I think they felt, well, we better get somebody who can talk, talk serious, you know. And in some cases, it was just, it made sense. I, I mean, obviously, I, I'm glad that the George Harrison one went to me. Mm-hmm. Because that was kind of an interview that I've been preparing for for the last, you know, 30 years, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, different people wanted, like, for, yeah, I remember... When Robert Plant came, that was going to be JD's interview, no matter what. I mean, he would have literally beat the crap out of you if you tried to step in on that one. So, you know, everybody knew. Trying to think of other examples. Laurie Brown interviewing David Bowie. They had a connection. Mm -hmm. I mean, nothing untoward. It was just they liked each other, and it was obvious on camera. And, um, and, And she really made that work for her and for him. She, she's a, a gifted broadcaster. You can see it in her work. Um, and apparently he did too, because there was an occasion where he was at a press event in California not that long afterwards, and one of the cameras was a much camera, and he saw the logo on it, and he went, Hi, Laurie. <laughs> and she said, made her day, made her month, made her year, <laughs> made her career. <laughs> so it was... A, a little bit random. I mean, it, 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 ostensibly, it was if it's your shift, it's your interview. But we all yeah. we all knew there was a lot, <laughs> lot more going on than that. Christopher, when you look at the Canadian acts that were big at that time, this is the Heyday, Glass Tiger, Platinum Blonde, The Box, Honeymoon Suite, Parachute Club. Anyone come up to your mind as an interesting interaction that you remember? I mean, I interviewed a lot of those bands, and I think uh, we were. I, I think much, and those bands were were great sort of partners in helping to build their careers that's that's what i remember like i mean i loved parachute club but to me like rise up is really an, a song that's emblematic of an entire era in canadian music and the glass tiger success story is a wonderful one as well as is the blue rodeo success story i mean jane sibbery there's an artist that without video could she have mounted a career like she did i mean it's not, i'm not saying we have to take credit for it. that's not the point it's more just, it was a, a good match of, you know, of mediums. I'm trying to remember if anything crazy happened with the Canadian artists. Well, I have to tell you, Christopher, when you, being in Santa Monica, you would have missed this one. But as everything kind of comes in cyclical, I have to tell you that literally two weeks ago, Massey Hall has just been significantly renovated. Right. It's my first time back there since it's been redone. And the show I went to see was Parachute Club with Rise Up. Opening for Glass Tiger. Oh, so, get out of here. 
Well, you, you, you can you can still catch them doing the hits for sure. <laughs> well, the other thing too is that the, those artists still sound great. I mean, I, I mean, I've, I've they were worked, amazing. I've worked with Alan, and I mean, he's got an incredible voice, and he's still killing it. And so is Lorraine. I mean, it's it's great. I mean, it's um, Billy Bryan's is a, a sad loss uh, from that that crew, but they were amazing. They still got it, and, they, and I got to tell you, the the place was packed. They had oh, no problem getting cool. a crowd. Christopher's songwriting, your best-known song is the Billboard number one single, Black Velvet, recorded by Alana Miles. For this, you won the Juno Award Songwriter of the Year in 1990. This was inspired by a trip to Memphis. Do you want to talk about what inspired you to write that song? Sure. <laughs> it's kind of a nutty story. I was sent on assignment to Memphis for the 10th anniversary of Elvis's death. And we decided that the best way to do it was to put me on a Greyhound bus with 40 Elvis fanatics and a cameraman. They were the sweetest people. They, uh, you know, there'd be like three generations of women who took their um, vacation every year. Their one week of vacation they would get, they would go down to Memphis for Elvis week. And th there was a guy who was 17 and, you know, he dyed his hair the perfect Elvis color. And his goal in life was to be an Elvis impersonator. I mean, you know, the committed. Yes, <laughs> that's committed. So the idea was that we would follow their experience through Graceland and see how they interacted with all the events and the people that were there. And it was great. It was a really fun, fun story. And there was a whole lot of more events that, that took place. But I typically would research when I was doing a story like that, because most of what I did was live, as you know. And then every once in a while, I would be sent on a, uh, an assignment like this. I was reading a book about the relationship between Elvis and his mother. And the author, whose name escapes me, um, went to Tupelo, where Elvis grew up. And she went to the church where his family worshipped. And she watched as the preacher fell to one knee at this really intense moment in, in his presentation and was exhorting the congregation and in that moment, she thought, God, this is a lot like Elvis's stage moves, the down on one knee, the whole thing. And um, that made me write the line, a new religion that'll bring you to your knees. And for me as a songwriter, I don't want to, I don't want to get too arcane here, <laughs> Andrew, but if, if there's one line that kind of gives me the right feeling, the right tone, that, that's enough to launch a song. And in this case, that was enough to launch the writing of Black Velvet. When that came out, did you see that? Was that the single? Had you kind of seen that as this was going to be the song? Or did it surprise you, to, so to speak, that it, it became so popular? Well, when we had the songs for Alana's first album, everybody loved that song. But I think they thought that Love Is, which did come before, uh, was the better choice for the first single. And in Canada, it truly was a great choice because it launched the album and the rest is history. Uh, today, of course, there have been covers of that song. There have been karaoke versions of Black Velvet. Are there any that stand out for you that you've enjoyed hearing that have been done since? <laughs> oh, man. There are so many versions of that song. Uh, CBC did a show called Cover Me Canada a few years ago. And the people who were applying to be on the show had a choice of, I think, four songs, four iconic Canadian songs that they could do. 
um, to apply, and Black Velvet was one of them. So instantly, overnight, they and they posted all of the uh, applicants' videos online, so you could see them. And in, you know, like there's a guy sitting on a bench who's like a solo banjo player doing a version of it, and then there's a, a heavy metal version, and of course there's a hip hop version. It's just, I mean, the the karaoke ones are pretty scary, as you can imagine. Yeah. But, he, but a lot of the bar bands, like I've heard various bar bands do the song, and, you know, they haven't topped Atlanta yet, I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing beats the original. Do you still get requests today to use that song for commercials or TV shows or samples to be used in other songs? How does that all work? I mean, there's a lot of thing uses that it hasn't had. It hasn't been in, like, a major commercial, like a radio or TV commercial. Um, it hasn't really been in a in a big feature film yet either. And it kind of has to be right um, because the copyright retains its value by not being used in, mm-hmm. in many respects. I'm trying to think where it has been used that would be interesting. Because I always think it. the recent examples, of course, are this Kate Bush song came back into popularity from oh, Stranger yeah. Things and suddenly a whole new you know, demographic is hearing it. And I wonder if you've either had the experience or maybe you see it coming down where where Black Velvet comes back and a new generation gets to enjoy it. Yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) The next generation, they can just fill their hats. Um, It hasn't happened along the lines of the Kate Bush one, but that's a great example. But stay tuned, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Well, listen, I I apologize in front of this is too personal a question, but I I also have quite a business angle on all my podcasts. I'm curious about the economics of writing a song that hits it big, as you did. Is it the writer, yourself, or Alana Miles, the singer, who kind of benefit from the popularity of a song? Or how would you describe the economics of songwriting? Well, in some way, all of the participants benefit from it. Um, there are just different royalty streams. And again, I don't want to get too, too in, the, in the machinery of it here. It depends whether you retain the rights to something, too, because typically a lot of songwriters give up the rights to their songs very early on in the process, and then that is it becomes a hit, and that is followed immediately by regret. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Alana would make artist royalties to this day, and I would make songwriter royalties. Um, Dave Tyson makes songwriter royalties for his participation in the, in the composition, but also he makes producer royalties. So there's all different streams that to varying degrees continue or thin out over time. It depends what kind of a copyright it is. I mean, certain songs like, I mean, is Who Let the Dogs Out still getting a lot of play? <laughs> yeah. But, but somebody will grab Who Let the Dogs Out and will put it in a movie and it will be perfect. And they're going to go, oh, my God, I remember that song. And, and whoever wrote it will make a whole bunch of money for a short period of time. It's, it's, it's a, there's a lot of long answers to that question. <laughs> well, and certainly with streaming, I think the whole economics of the industry has, has changed so significantly. Yes, that is absolutely right. Christopher, I want to ask you about your podcast, Famous Lost Words, with Chum Radio producer Tom Jokic. This is yeah. kind of a deep dive into the archives. I've enjoyed hearing it. Some of the clips are amazing. How do you curate and, and find some of these outstanding clips when there's so much out there? It's all Tom. Yeah. <laughs> My partner, Tom Jokic, he is, he's the archivist extraordinaire yeah. and has access to the, uh, this library that is, I mean, I think one of the deepest archives of interviews. I mean, he, you know, we, we've gone back to like Elvis 
and as modern as Taylor Swift. It's and everything in between. And it's entirely due to his hard work and, and research. All I have to do is uh, listen to them, make a few comments, and then we kind of joke back and forth and then move on to the next one. Yeah. And it is so much fun doing that show because the idea, the theory behind it is that this interview material has been buried oftentimes for many, many years. It may have been heard once when it was first recorded or when the artist was still touring or making records or whatever, uh, and then long forgotten. And some of it sounds intentionally dated, and that's funny. You know, when mm -hmm. artists just make complete asses of themselves, usually there's a certain amount of pomposity involved, um, and that's fun. But also sometimes revealing a lot of things, like... There's one clip where John Lennon is talking about Imagine, and he basically says that if he wasn't so, I got to get this right, sort of macho might not be the right word, but if he wasn't such a domineering male, he would have given credit for co-writing the song to Yoko Ono. Mm. That he basically kind of took her idea and built it into the lyrics for Imagine. And that just stopped me cold when I heard that. So those kind of revelations many years later, those lost words, I think really make this show worth listening to. Yeah, well, you, you do. It's amazing to me how you can combine so many diverse sets of uh, source material. So where would all, when you say the archives, what does that mean? Like, is this all uh, in, in one repository or is it kind of uh, wherever the internet can take you? No, I mean, it's all... My permission from Bell. Amazing. Well, it's an incredible source for material. Yeah. Well, Tom was the um, producer of the morning show at Chum FM uh, with Roger Ashby and Marilyn Dennis for, I don't know how many years, 20-odd years. And so he kind of knows what stuff is in the archives. He also has the right kind of mind for it. Yeah. He, he, and he was present for a lot of these interviews, so he brings that additional perspective to it. Well, again, I'll bring you up to speed, which you'll find interesting. Marilyn Dennis, still doing the morning show in this market. so she, You know what? She is such a good interviewer. I mean, interviewing is a very, very tough skill to master. And there are different ways of going at it. And she just creates an environment in which the artist feels like they're in an easy chair. And they're having their morning coffee, and they're chatting, and they're... Their friends are hanging out with them, and maybe there's some audience members. Maybe the audiences get to call in and ask questions. But she, she gets to questions that some of which I would be far too nervous to ask, some of which I really don't want to know the answer to, like Sting's tantric sex habits. Yes. Um, but she just goes for it, and it's brilliant. She's, well, you, she's... you know you're an interviewer, and you're, I mean, you do a great job, but you also probably know there are some challenges inherent. I mean, I, I grew up listening to, I was thinking about him the other day because I just read a story about him yesterday, Dick Cavett. Mm -hmm. And he, he wasn't Johnny. He wasn't like an insider showbiz guy at all. Um, he was kind of the cool guy. He was the, the turtleneck and, and the corduroy jacket sort of host with a great natural wit and knowledge of his material. But he also could be the straight guy interviewing, you know, like Sly Stone or Jimi Hendrix or Janis Joplin. I mean, he, the people that he had on that show, sorry, tangent. Um, but, you know, 
watching those old clips and watching how people handled those situations. And similarly, listening to Marilyn's best work. Um, I mean, there was an interview with George Michael that she did that was just extraordinary. Well, she keeps plugging away for sure. Well, you're going to have more material for your podcast because she's still generating. Oh, excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Christopher, one of your songs appeared in the video game, Grand Theft Auto V. Is it safe to say this was an unexpected landing spot for one of your song creations? <laughs> well, I, I don't really know anything about Grand Theft Auto V. I really don't know anything about uh, Grand Theft Auto 4, 3, or 2, or 1. <laughs> Any of the iterations. <laughs> so, I, don't, I don't even know what that means. I mean, I know that it was on there. But I, it's, it's also been on some pretty cool TV shows. It was on New Girl, which uh, I like. And I'm trying to think. Oh, oh, and the other one is uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. They love playing Black Velvet on that show, which is excellent. And now there's a Canadian Drag Race one, which is also using Black Velvet. So Always new opportunities. Yeah. <laughs> Christopher, how often do you get recognized in Santa Monica, California, as the guy from TV in Canada? <laughs> uh, <laughs> mercifully, rarely. Yeah, it just doesn't happen. But you know what? I don't know that I look that much like the guy who was on TV in Canada in 1989. <laughs> uh, what do you miss about Canada and, and more specifically Toronto? I don't know if you still have friends and family. Do you get back to Toronto? I go back to Toronto often. I love the city. I have family members, great friendships, work opportunities like working with Tom on the podcast. Um I did a new album a couple of years ago and recorded it all in Toronto with all Toronto players. I mean, the music community there is just so rich. And like I said to you, I even miss the winter, so I know you're going to loan me your shovel when I come up. <laughs> I have a standing open invitation for you oh, to join me you're in Richmond Hill. I will keep some. I'll keep some here for you. Christopher, you've been great with your time. I do want to close off by asking, what are you working on? And uh, what, what can we look for from you in uh, 2023? Well, um, if the uh, scripted comedy series comes through, uh, I suspect I will be involved as a consultant, but that's, it's a little early to say, but I'm really stoked about that. And um, continuing to do the podcast, I did a, that's my dog, don't worry. I did a, uh, <laughs> uh, I did a blog for a little over a year recently called Over Easy, uh, Tall Tales and Short Stories. And some of it was about my family. Some of it was about my history growing up. Some of it was about music and playing in bands and all of those experiences. And I'm thinking of trying to make that into a book version. Um, So that would be fun to do. Um, Nobody's clamoring for it, but feel free to clamor. (laughs) But uh, it would be be fun to do. And, you know, I had this model in, in my mind, you know, who Ray Davies is from the Kinks. Yes. And he, well, he launched really the uh, VH1 series, Storytellers, by a show that he did where he, he had a couple of um, easy chairs and he had a guitar player. And he had a book out called X-Ray, the Unauthorized Autobiography. <laughs> I love that. And he would read little passages and then play an acoustic version of, you know, All Day and All of the Night or whatever. And I thought, man, that would be really fun to do. Tell the stories, play the songs. Yeah. Good night. You got the creative juices going. Well, you have to, don't you? I mean, what else am I going to do? 
And also, I mean, just seriously, I mean, creativity is kind of like its own form of dopamine. It, it launches me into the day and gives meaning to life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just grateful that I still have the ability to do it. Fantastic. I don't know how involved you are with social media. Can people go anywhere to follow what you're up to, Christopher? Yeah, they can look. <laughs> yeah. And if they find it, let me know. <laughs> no, no, that's not true. No, and I, I after my, 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 poor, <laughs> my poor manager, Jeff Rogers, who's brilliant, um, has uh, helped me set all these things up. I mean, you know, I think there's an Instagram uh, account. Uh, definitely, I, I, I've used Facebook, and I know that Facebook is sort of antiquated, uh, sorry, meta, but uh, only because the people who are my contemporaries, they still use it. And that's, mm-hmm. that's why that's where I posted the blog. But I realized that that's a limited audience reach, which is why I think doing a print version might be cool. But yeah, I did a, sort of a chronicle of the making of the record, and that was really fun. We recorded it at the Orange Lounge Studios in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Beautiful studio. And of course, you, we can go to ChristopherWard.ca. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you saved me. Nicely done. Well, it, it was really great catching up with you, hearing all your stories. You got such a varied past. And uh, I want to wish you a great 2023 and continued success. Andrew, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really enjoyed this. It was my pleasure. And to the listeners, we say thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast, powered by Henderson Brewing Company. And on behalf of Christopher Ward, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. This is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network.